Well, hello, this is Opa back to read another chapter of All Creatures Great and Small, St. Martin's Press, 1972, and we're going to be in chapter 29 tonight. So, Father, we give you thanks that we have the privilege of a recording device, of a voice to speak, ears to hear, and a delight to see your creation through the eyes of an author. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so, chapter 29. It didn't take Mr. Cranford long to make good his threat. He called at the surgery shortly after lunch the following day, and Siegfried and I enjoyed a post-prandial cigarette in the sitting room, heard the jangle of the doorbell. We didn't get up because most of the farmers walked in after ringing. The dogs, however, went into their usual routine. They had had a long run on the high moor that morning and had just finished looking out their dinner bowls. Tired and distended, they had collapsed in a snoring heap around Siegfried's feet. There was nothing they wanted more than ten minutes' peace, but, despite dedicated as they were to their self-appointed role of fierce guardians of the house, they did not hesitate. They leaped up, baying, from the rug and hurled themselves into the passage. People often wondered why Siegfried kept five dogs. Not only kept them, but took them everywhere with him. Driving on his rounds, it was difficult to see him at all among the shaggy heads and waving tails, and anybody approaching the car would recoil in terror from the savage barking and the bared fangs and glaring eyes framed in the windows. I cannot for the life of me understand, Siegfried would declare, thumping his fist on his knee, why people keep dogs as pets. A dog should have a useful function. Let it be used for farm work, for shooting, for guiding. But why anybody should keep the things just hanging around the place beats me. It was a pronouncement he was continually making, often through a screen of flapping ears and lolling tongues as he sat in his car. His listener would look wonderingly from the huge greyhound to the tiny terrier, from the spaniel to the whippet to the scotty, but nobody ever asked Siegfried why he kept his own dogs. I judged that the pack fell upon Mr. Cranford about the bend of the passage, and many a lesser man would have fled, but I could hear him fighting his way doggedly forward. When he came through the sitting room door, he had removed his hat and was beating the dogs off with it. It wasn't a wise move, and the barking rose to a higher pitch. The man's eyes stared, and his lips moved continuously, but nothing came through. Siegfried, courteous as ever, rose and indicated a chair. His lips, too, were moving, no doubt in a few gracious words of welcome. Mr. Cranford flapped his black coat, swooped across the carpet, and perched. The dog sat in a ring around him and yelled up into his face. Usually they collapsed after their exhausting performance, but there was something in the look or smell of Mr. Cranford that they didn't like. Siegfried leaned back in his armchair, put his fingers together, and assumed a judicial expression. Now and again, he nodded understandingly or narrowed his eyes as if taking an interesting point. Practically nothing could be heard from Mr. Cranford, but occasionally a word or phrase penetrated. Have a serious complaint to make. Doesn't know his job. Can't afford not a rich man. These dang dogs won't have him again. Damn dog get by. Not but robbery. Siegfried, completely relaxed and apparently oblivious of the din, listened attentively, but as the minutes passed, I could see the strain beginning, beginning to tell on Mr. Cranford. His eyes began to start from their sockets, and the veins corded on his scrawny neck as, they tried to get his message, as he tried to get his message across. Finally, it was too much for him. He jumped up, and a leaping brown tide bore him to the door. He gave a last defiant cry, lashed out again with his hat, and was gone. 
Pushing open the dispensary door a few weeks later, I found my boss mixing an ointment. He was working with great care, turning and returning the glutinous mass on a marble slab. What's this you're doing, I asked. Siegfried threw down his spatula and straightened his back. Ointment for a bore. He looked past me at Tristan, who had just come in. And I don't know why I'm doing it when some people are sitting around on their backsides. He indicated the spatula. All right, Tristan. You can have a go. When you finished your cigarette, that is. His expression softened as Tristan hastily nipped out his woodbine and began to work away on the slab. Pretty stiff concoction, that. Takes a bit of mixing, Siegfried said with satisfaction, looking at his brother's bent head. The back of my neck was beginning to ache with it. He turned to me. By the way, you'll be interested to hear it's for your old friend Cranford, for that prized boar of his. He's got a nasty sore across his back, and is worried to... And he's worried to death about it. Wins him a lot of money at the shows, and a blemish there would be disastrous. Cranford's still with us, then? Yes, it's a funny thing, but we can't get rid of him. I don't like losing clients, but I'd gladly make an exception of this chap. He won't have you near the place after that lightning job, and he makes it very clear he doesn't think much of me, either. Tells me I'll never do his beast any good. Says it would have been a lot better if he'd never called me. And moans like hell when he gets his bill. He's more bothered than he's worth, and on top of everything, he gives me the creeps. But he won't leave. He well won't leave. He knows which side his bread's buttered, I said. He gets first-rate service, and the moaning is part of the system to keep the bills down. Maybe they're right, but I wish there was a simple way to get rid of him. He tapped Tristan on the shoulder. All right, don't strain yourself. That'll do. Uh, put it uh, into this ointment box and label it. Apply liberally to the boar's back three times daily, working it well in well with the fingers. And post it to Mr. Cranford. And while you're on, will you post this feces sample to the laboratory, laboratory at Leeds to test for John's disease? He held a, a treacle tin brimming with foul-smelling liquid diarrhea. It was a common thing to collect such samples and send them away for John's tests, worms count, worm counts, etc. And there was always one thing all the samples had in common. They were very large. All that was needed for the test was a couple of teaspoons, but the farmers were lavish in their quantities. They seemed pleasantly surprised that all the vet wanted was a bit of muck from the cha dung channel. They threw aside their natural caution and shoveled the stuff up cheerfully into the biggest container they could find. They brushed aside all protests. Take plenty. We've lots of it, was their attitude. Tristan took hold of the tin ginger gingerly and began to look along the shelves. We don't seem to have any of those little glass sample jars. That's right. We're out of them, said Secret. I meant to order some more, but never mind. Shove the lid on that tin and press it down tight. Then parcel it well in brown paper. It'll travel to the lab, all right? It took only three days for Mr. Cranford's name to come up again. Siegfried was opening the morning mail, throwing the circulars to one side and making a pile of the bills and receipts when he became suddenly very still. He had frozen over a letter on blue notepaper, and he sat like a statue till he read it through. At length, he raised his head. His face was expressionless. James, this is just about the most vitriolic letter I have ever read. It's from Mr. Cranford. He's finished with us for good and all and is considering taking legal against us, legal action against us. What have we done this time, I asked. He accuses us of grossly insulting him and endangering the health of his boar. He says that we sent him a treacle bin full of cow manure with instructions to rub it on the boar's back three times daily. Tristan, who had been sitting with his eyes half closed, became fully awake. 
He rose unhurriedly and began to make his way towards the door. His hand was on the knob when his brother's voice thundered out. Tristan, come back here. Sit down. I think we have something to talk about. Tristan looked up resolutely, waiting for the storm to break. But Siegfried was unexpectedly calm. His voice was gentle. So, you've done it again. When will I ever learn that I can't trust you to carry out the simplest task? It wasn't too much to ask, was it? Two little parcels to post, hardly a tough assignment. But you managed to botch it. You got the labels wrong, didn't you? Tristan wiggled and wriggled in his chair. I'm sorry. I can't think how. Siegfried held up his hand. Oh, don't worry. Your usual luck has come to your aid. With anybody else, this bloomer would be catastrophic. But with Cranford, it's like divine providence. He paused for a moment and a dreamy expression crept into his eyes. The label said to work it in well with the fingers, I seem to recall. And Mr. Cranford says he opened the package at the breakfast table. Yes, Tristan, I think you have found the way. This, I do believe, has done it. I said, but how about the legal action? Oh, I think we can forget about that. Mr. Cranford has a good sense of his own dignity. Just think how it would sound in court. He crumpled the letter and dropped it into the waste paper basket. Well, let's get on with some work. He led the way out and stopped abruptly in the passage. He turned to face us. There's another thing, of course. I wonder how the lab is making out, testing that ointment for John's disease. Okay, I love you. Have a great rest of your day when you're done listening.